Welcome and thank you for being part of the Becker's Health IT and Revenue Cycle Management virtual event. Innovation and data privacy are two aims that health systems today are charged to vigorously pursue. And while innovation and privacy are not mutually exclusive, it does require thoughtful, deliberate, and unwavering leadership for each to become values that are truly lived out in their organizations and cultures. My name is Molly Gamble. I'm Vice President of Editorial for Becker's Healthcare. And today I'm setting out to learn how leaders at two large nonprofit health systems in the US balance innovation and data privacy in an environment that oftentimes would like you to think the two are either or. I'm joined by Manoja Lekamwasam, System Vice President of Intellectual Property, Life Sciences and Device and Strategic Innovation for Common Spirit Health, and Sony Jacob, Chief Information Officer for SSM Health. So Sony, Manoja, thank you very much for being here with me today and I'm looking forward to this conversation. I'm gonna start by asking you both to share a little bit more about your roles, your organizations and yourselves and then we'll turn it over to some questions I've lined up. Manoja, can I throw it over to you? Thank you so much, Molly. Um, so uh, I'm Manoj Alekam Wasim. Um, um, as Molly mentioned, I'm responsible for life sciences and device innovation and intellectual property for Common Spirit Health. And um, I'm a molecular microbiologist by training and have been doing innovation in healthcare for um, a few years now. Common Spirit Health is uh, the largest nonprofit mission-based healthcare system in the US by revenue. And Common Spirit Health was, um, came to be um, by the alignment between Dignity Health and Catholic Health Initiatives. And at this point, we're in 21 states and have about 160,000 employees in the system. We're a mission-based healthcare system. Um, we believe in social justice for all and improving the health inequities in the underserved communities that we serve in. And... Um, we look forward to, um, during this time, to using the innovation and the ability of the two legacy health systems to bring it together so that we are able to serve our populations and our patients in a very effective manner. Thank you for being here with us today, Nusha. Sony? Thank you, Molly. I'm Sony Jacob. I'm the Chief Information Officer at SSM Health. SSM Health is a uh, four-state regional health system, um, Catholic-based, faith-based organization that was created about 100 years ago. And our ministry has always been about taking care of the poor and underserved patients in our communities. Um, we find ourselves in a unique position during this pandemic where we see the work of our hands impacting our communities and, and really helping to drive change wherever we can. Um, SSM comprises of about 42,000 employees. We have 26 hospitals. And in addition to that, we also have a unique practice of hosting EPIC for 26 other regional entities that are outside of our ownership structure, but help drive uh, patient care in those communities. And we feel that being able to extend our technology beyond our four walls allows us to take our mission to where it's really needed in those poor communities where acute care hospitals if we don't have the resources to have a fully functional electronic health record. We're also one of the very few organizations in, in the U.S. that have a single instance of EPIC. So all of that is hosted in one instance of EPIC, which allows us to take advantage of the functionality and roll it out to all of our enterprise with one click, right? So uh, we're excited that um, uh, we get to talk about some of these very important topics today. 
However, it's also very unnerving that we are going through a very unique and unprecedented circumstances where our communities are in fear and they're trying to understand how we as healthcare leaders are going to lead through these uncertain times. So excited to be here. Previous to SSM, I was the Chief Information Officer at um, Presbyterian Healthcare Systems, which is, um, which is the largest health system in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, the other piece I would add is unique, unique for SSM Health is um, with the vision of our sisters and our leadership in the past, we've created some diversification in our revenue stream. So in addition to being uh, a 24 hospital system across four states, we also have a fully owned um, health plan in Wisconsin and a, and a prescription benefits company also in Wisconsin that serves customers across the country. Thank you, Sony. I think you hit the nail on the head in that these topics, when we had planned this agenda for an in-person event, are of course important and crucial, but I think in recent weeks and months, they've taken on even more gravity and weight. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from you both and how you're pursuing these and balancing these dual demands in your organizations and in your roles. As we get started here, I thought we could take each of the values that we're discussing today, innovation and data privacy, and I wanted to learn more about how patients approach the two in your experience, just so I'm making sure I'm not resting this conversation on any assumptions about what patients care about most in these moments. How would you describe patients' attitudes toward data privacy um, based on your own experience? And then I'm curious too, if that's evolved or changed at all in the past six months amid this pandemic? So when we look at um, patient data privacy, it's interesting, right? Uh, patient, how patients look at privacy of data is, is in, in my opinion, um, determined by the demographic makeup and the generational makeup of the patient base. So one thing that we have not done in healthcare is we haven't segmented our patient base appropriately. So if you look at industries like retail, they have a clear understanding of their different segments of customers, right? But in healthcare, we treat all patients equally because healthcare is a high touch, uh, almost spiritual uh, relationship where you are in the process of healing. And especially in ministries like ours, where we are, where in our mission statement, it says that we are, uh, we are in extending the healing ministry of Jesus Christ, right? So because, because of that nature of our business, we don't necessarily segment patients, but patients based on their uh, demographic break, break, uh, makeup and their generational makeup look at privacy differently. So if you look at um, high, high concentration of our patients who are Medicare and Medicaid patients, they are disadvantaged in a lot of ways. And to a certain extent, they expect the health system to look out for their privacy, right? So when they think about data privacy, they think they're assumption is that the health system is responsible for that, right? At the same time, if you look at the growing population of millennials who have grown up in a different world where data is, is shared as an asset or it's, it's almost a currency for them, they expect that they should have access to their data. They feel that they should make decisions around how they share their data, with whom they share their data, and what they get in return for sharing their data, right? So I would say that um, as, as we have an aging population in the U.S., uh, we see that there is a segment of our population that uh, values that privacy but expects us as the provider of care to be the um, guardians of that data. 
And then there is the other growing population that expects to trade their data as a currency so that they could get benefits from it and use those benefits to to improve uh, services that allow for better convenience, right? So we look at it and we say, okay, um, the old uh, the old methodology of protecting data or being the protector of data, does it really apply going forward? Um, or does it apply based on the segment of the population you're trying to serve? So I, I agree with Sony about how um, privacy is looked at depends on um, generational uh, view. And we find that, as, as you mentioned, the millennials are much more open to using technology um, for having their healthcare uh, virtually uh, via telemedicine and, and the opportunities to, to reach out to them uh, is much more diverse than it is with the older populations that we serve. That being said, I think what's also interesting is you know, when you look at data, it really is the patient's data, right? And we are the custodians of the data. So mm -hmm. we're responsible for protecting it. And as such, I think um, the, the privacy and the compliance colleagues that we have have a huge responsibility to make sure that regardless of who wants what with the data, that we take care of our responsibility in, in an appropriate manner. And so I think that there's also that issue where when privacy and uh, innovation come together, that we have to be aware of that and work with our colleagues to make sure that that's taken care of as well. Very helpful. So I think you just walked me through a lot where you have, as Sony said, you might not in healthcare be able to or have in the past segmented data as rigorously as other industries and sectors like retail, for instance. But it sounds like the two dominant schools are either um, data as currency, here's my data, I want you to use it to make my life more convenient. I also want access to all the data you have on me. And then there's another school where it's, this is my data, I trust you with it, I trust that you will fiercely protect it. Um, and that's more of the guardian role like you were both saying. Okay, that's helpful. So I think this is gonna, we're gonna come back to this in a bit, but I wanted to do the same and get a baseline understanding of how you would describe your patient's attitudes toward innovation. Can you walk me through some of the similar observations that you did for privacy? Manoja, can you, I ask you to start there? So I, I think innovation's a, a really interesting word because it means different things to different people. Um, and, and I think, you know, during uh, when the, the pandemic hit us, right, um, we had to find innovative ways of taking care of our patients because we couldn't have them come to our uh, facilities. And so um, telemedicine and virtual visits and video visits, which were considered to be innovation and not really used that much, became the mode of how we interacted with our patients. And, um, and as people, physicians and patients and caregivers started to get more and more comfortable, it seems like right now, these visits, these virtual visits and, and in, in innovative ways of connecting with our patients has become normal because people are nervous about um, uh, the pandemic and, and infections. And so I think interestingly in the last you know, three to four months, we've seen generations and populations that were nervous about innovation or, or hesitant about um, using innovative methodologies, now actually accepting and using it because they see how it helps them interact with their caregivers and also to make their lives much easier. So, so I think it'll be very interesting to see how, as we move forward, um, each 
of these segments or these populations um, react and accept innovation. And so I think that what we were thinking about innovation before COVID happened is going to be very different uh, now, you know, as we start to, to continue. I wouldn't say post COVID yet because we're still in the pandemic, but during and post this, this pandemic. Manojo makes an excellent point. Um, you know, innovation is, was viewed from an interesting uh, lens pre-COVID, right? And we always tend to take solace in the fact that patients don't always want to use technology to connect. The reality is doctors didn't want to use technology to connect, right? Why? Because it was going to disrupt our business model. And healthcare for, for a long time has been resisting this disruption. We do not want to disrupt ourselves. But what happened with the pandemic is it forced us into disruption. And in my own experience, SSM, we moved from being a brick and mortar based organization to a digitally run organization. And we had to do it over a period of weeks, right? So all those processes that depend required physical presence then became digital and virtualized within days, right? So for us, as we look at this to say, uh, what, what does innovation look like for patients going forward? I think in the past, we've always thought about telehealth visits as being innovative. Um, they're really not, right? You're taking the existing physical process of, of doing a one-on-one -on -one interaction with, um, with a patient and making it digital. That's all that's happened, right? Nothing's really changed from an innovation standpoint. However, uh, organizations have viewed that as being innovative because it's a disruptive business model, right? So it, it, as Manoja mentioned, in, in our case too, we moved from having 50 visits digitally to about 5,000 visits a day. And that really triggered a completely different experience for our patients. And if you look at the recent press Ganey surveys that came out, they're showing that patients have the same level of satisfaction from the digital visits or the virtual visits as they had from their physical visits, which is fantastic. So what's really exciting for me is as I look at that, as we go through this pandemic over the next few months, we will not only just have patient satisfaction data, we're gonna have quality data about virtual visits, which is then going to help um, both the federal government and payers make some decisions around what is the efficacy of these visits? If the quality is just as good, why wouldn't you facilitate those visits and make it more convenient for patients, right? So, but, but at the same time, when, uh, when you, that concept of innovation is different for uh, patients based on generational gaps and demographic gaps, right? Older patients wanna see more technology being used. They're comfortable with the use of technology and for them, that's innovative. Uh, the younger generation, the millennials, they expect technology. It's a basic entry point, right? They wake up, they look at their iPhones. They, they look at their phones before they even brush their teeth, right? So for them, the use of technology is a no-brainer. And the question always has been, why am I not using technology to connect with my doctor? Now that we have, the next step in that process is to say, what does personalized medicine look like? You know, we have, we have been doing DNA scanning for, for years now. Can we now look at the DNA panel and say, for this particular patient, based on the DNA studies, this is, this, these kind of medications are going to work better. That kind of data that exists within 
uh, within our research networks today has not been utilized appropriately, right? And if we were to utilize it appropriately, how more effective would we be at delivering care? The definition of care delivery today, to a large extent, is symptom management. It's not cure. And so, so when I think about innovation, I ask the question, can you use DNA sequencing to drive personalized medicine to the end consumer that actually cures disease? And if you're able to do that, now you have changed the scales for how to control costs and access in healthcare, right? Because if the patient can get the care they need by the second visit and not have to come back for another eight visits, now you've, created, you've changed the equation on how to create more access within the delivery system, right? So for me, the, that is where I look at when I think about innovation to say, not just technology, how do we incorporate scientific data that has been created and has been available in the delivery of care, leveraging technology to bridge the gap so that what we deliver for our patients cures disease, not just addresses symptoms, right? So. I think um, to add to what Sony said as well, and, and I think one of the biggest issues of um, having you know, precision medicine or personalized medicine and sequencing and genomics uh, in community hospitals like we are serving is that it's always happened in research institutions or um, they've been sort of experimental mm-hmm. look at it as if it's research. But um, 80% of care happens in the communities. and this interaction between a physician and a patient is sort of the, the, the most important act in healthcare. And I think it needs to get to that interaction. And the way that happens is if community hospitals and um, you know, non-academic um, hospitals and medical centers start to look at these types of innovations and incorporate that into care. So in addition to looking at genomics and targeted therapy and, and precision personalized medicine, can we use technology to see what happens to our patients post-acute when they're away from the hospitals? And how do we incorporate that data in a way that helps our physicians and not overwhelm them? Um, and, and sort of bringing this whole ecosystem together, I think, is the full um, effect of, of um, innovation. And I think that first interaction, as Sony mentioned, of you know, this very basic interaction of physician and patient virtually might disrupt some of those um, issues that we faced when we were trying to do innovation pre-COVID. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how we as healthcare providers and the patients start to, to take these lessons and build on it together. So I think that's a really helpful, you laid the groundwork not only for how patients often approach innovation and their preferences and what they expect from your organizations, but also how you as leaders see it. I think, you know, when you said it can mean, that word can mean so many different things to different people. Sony, I think some of your examples were great um, illustrations of that. Is this really innovation or is this just, are we simply using technology that has long been available to us because our environment has changed and we're more restricted in how much care we can deliver face-to-face? Is that truly transformational? Can we call it innovation or is it simply we're adapting to a different environment than we were in six months ago? So really helpful to, to understand that better from both of your perspectives. I wanna mix back in the element of data privacy and I'm curious how, given the fact that 
most patients don't have the time or the expertise to defend their data from large corporations or the brightest minds in Silicon Valley. Are hospitals any different? I would say hospitals are different when it comes to protecting data because as Manoja mentioned earlier, we have been the guardians of this data for so long, right? So we have teams and privacy officers that every day they wake up and they think about how to keep this data safe, right? Secondarily, I think the storage mechanism that we use to get access to this data and how this data is stored within our environments um, makes a difference in how safe the data is. So for example, um, if you look at clinical data, which is predominantly in a clinical EHR, uh, the database could be encrypted. If the data exists out of the clinical EHR in a separate database for reporting purposes, that database is encrypted too, right? Whereas if that data was in the hands of the patient and they're walking around with it, most patients would just put it on the computer as a flat file. And if it's on the computer as a flat file, it's not encrypted and anyone could get to it, right? So I think healthcare organizations are slightly positioned better to protect data than the patient themselves are. But I also think that uh, with the current regulations, if we really wanna make, put data in the hands of patients, we really need to think outside of the box and say, what does that really mean? Do we now incorporate some, some kind of policy that introduces a third party in the, in the process that really builds the infrastructure that allows patients to have access to their data, but also ensures that that access is maintained in a safe manner? right? As opposed to here's your data, go keep it where you want to keep it, right? Um, so there are, I would say in a lot of ways, institutions are, um, although institutional hacks do happen, uh, institutions are more prepared to manage and protect this data than individuals. Um, it comes at a cost. Uh, individuals might not have the resources to invest in that cost. And especially when we look at the patients that we serve, if they're, you know, if you have patients that are homeless or if you have patients that are in really poor communities, they don't have, uh, they don't have resources to, for their basic needs, right? How are they thinking about protecting their data? It's not even possible for them, right? That's beyond what they can think through. So, depending on where your patient base falls in the in the overall um, socioeconomic uh, scheme, I think. Um, I, I think a lot more institutions are better, better positioned to protect that data on the behalf of the patient. And I, just to add to what Sony was saying, I think um, it's also important for us to make sure that, you know, as, as providers or health systems, I think we have the resources and the capability and infrastructure bill to take care of um, the data because we are legal guardians of that data. Um, and there's two ways to look at it. Number one, if a patient wants the data, it's the patient's data. Uh, and, and, you know, I think you need to provide it to them saying, you know, there is a risk if you don't take care of this, but you still have to provide it. But I also think um, while we put all of these safeguards in place, sometimes there could be use of this de-identified data or limited data sets that might be available in some of the contracts that we put in place when we try to get um, services from, from industry where there is uh, automatic use that gets built into these agreements where, um, you know, larger companies, like you mentioned, could aggregate data sets to do work in the future. So I think 
um, as a healthcare system, we you know worry about privacy, compliance. Our IT folks uh, worry about security and keeping the data safe. But then our legal folks and innovation people like us, when we are doing our contracts, we also have to be very aware of you know what use rights do we give in these contracts and and how do we make sure that it's uh, in keeping with protecting the privacy and the. Uh, uh, the data of our patients and our organization. That makes sense. That's a great, I think, contrast to as a, a citizen or a patient um, to sometimes feel like what you might be up against in terms of protecting your data and guarding against um, that being accessed or used without your knowledge compared, Sony, as you said, an institutional, long-standing institutions that people have trusted with their data for generations now and continue to do so. Um, and Manoja, you mentioned contracts and the, the, acts, the levers that you are in a position to pull and to ensure that you are being vigor, rigorously uh, defensive of data. It's a great overview. You know, there's no shortage of policy proposals to strengthen privacy. And, you know, we're ahead now of a presidential election. We're going to be hearing a lot more about policies in these next several months. But whether these policies protect innovation is not necessarily a sure thing. I'm curious if there is one single policy that if you had your druthers, you would see enacted in this next year ahead. Manoja, does anything come to mind for you? So um, I think it's really interesting when um, we try to uh, look at data use and innovation um, of you know, using data. I think one of the things that is, is and, and Sony mentioned this a little bit at the beginning too, I think an honest broker that's able to potentially build that infrastructure um, that um, you know, is, is keeps the data and could potentially provide access to the patients, but also in you know, research situations or innovation situations where that data comes from a very uh, nonpartisan way. Um, in some way, if there was an ability to have that type um, of an honest broker situation and a policy that protects uh, an infrastructure like that, maybe some of the mistrust that exists between entities and, and academic institutions and patients and industry might be reduced and it's an opportunity for us to to look at how we can start to use the data in a much more comprehensive manner. Um, you know, there's a lot of policies and a lot of laws and a lot of regulation uh, and it's all there to in, in with good intention. Um, but when you look at it from innovation, I think the, the more you can uh, put in place to uh, reduce mistrust of the different parties that are working together to build innovation, I think policies that support that would be um, very useful in moving innovation forward. Manoja made a good point about the honest broker, but I'll take it a step, uh, I'll take us a step back. So when you think about in the past, um, innovation always took place irrespective of how much data was available, right? And innovation depends, and a big key to innovation is the entrepreneur wanting to create something of value to a consumer base, right? So if you look at healthcare, um, there is a disconnect between the consumer and the provider of care. And you have the third party in the middle, which is the payer, right? And because you have the payer in the middle, there really isn't much innovation that happens in healthcare because there isn't that direct connection between the consumer and the provider of care, right? 
So, so to me, um, to me, innovation will happen as the consumers of healthcare take more uh, power in their hands around decisions on where and whose services they consume. Right. If you talk about specific policies, I think the honest broker is definitely a requirement for us in the current world that we live in, but it's more a business model, right? So the honest broker business model needs to be introduced and supported to drive innovation in healthcare because so much of innovation in healthcare is dependent on data, right? But innovation can still happen without data, but in today's world, using the amount of data available helps for a faster pace of innovation, which is key, right? If we need to stay above, stay faster than the rest of the world, so you need to use the data. So if you say that, okay, innovation can happen without data, but we want to leverage data to become more innovative in healthcare. I would say the the policies that uh, one of the policies that I would suggest that should be incorporated into the current information blocking act is to look through and say what is the minimum requirement for the third party that is requesting the data? So take an example, if I can build a healthcare app, recruit 200 subscribers, and then go to a health system and say, I want access to the 200 subscribers data because they signed a form, right? It must have cost me $30,000 to build the app. I got no liabilities. I've got no assets. I have an application. Send me your data. Now, if I do something fraudulent with that data, there's no lab. What are you going to sue me for if I don't have any assets? So a policy that, in, that says that and that entities that require or use healthcare data should have certain degree of assets or insurance associated with them, so as to cover liabilities that are introduced by the misuse of that data. I think that is critical because we know that eventually data will be misused. So protecting the consumer by ensuring that we put in enough or a certain high bar on those third parties that can use direct patient data is something that I think that we should introduce via policy. Because what we've done right now is via policy, we have said that anyone can come ask for patient data based on patient subscriptions and you should give them the data. Well, hold them accountable, right? Make the bar so high that if they were to break the law, that they are punishable and, they, and there, is an, there is some form of compensation for the patient because in the absence of that, who provides compensation to the patient if their data is misused? And if you are able to do that, you then break that um, reluctance to share information, right? both on the parts of the providers and on the part of the patients. Hence, data flows more easily, which then drives innovation because both parties feel that they're protected because, um, because misuse of the data will, will, be, uh, will be handled appropriately. And I think um, just a, a little bit of a devil's advocate situation here, Sony. Uh, I, I think it's also, though, important that when we're doing those policies that we look at um, not stymieing innovation by smaller companies that might be a lot more innovative than the larger companies and much more agile. Um, and, and so any of those policies, if we're looking at insurance or, or uh, any other liability clauses, needs to balance with, you know, a, a smaller entity should be able to be doing innovation and moving things forward. Um, and and it should not be stopped because they couldn't afford it or if that 
the policy was just too stringent because we could lose out on some very innovative things. And so I think in this conversation of policies, um, the providers, the patients, and the companies should all be at the table to talk with each other to put things in place that work for each other. I, I, I don't think you know one entity should be doing the policy on their own. Um, I completely, I completely agree. I, I think that um, the mechanism that we have to design um, has to have a certain degree of, um, and when I say gate, so if you think about today in healthcare, myself as the CIO, I don't have access to patient data. The only people who have access to patient data are providers who are certified, trained to treat the patients, right? So, so if we're going to give that data now to somebody, what what is the expectation of that individual, right? And, and how do you expect, how do you set the expectation to drive ethical behavior, right? And that's the question we have to answer. I think this interaction was even a great glimpse into when these decisions are made and these policies are drafted, the level of sophisticated conversation and evaluation, deliberation, devil's advocate, as you call them, Anuja, that needs to happen. Because like you said, if one perspective completely outweighs the other, um, we're losing some of these serious considerations we need to be keeping top of mind. This makes a great amount of sense. So Manuja, I'm hearing um, a honest broker of information that is less exposed to risks of mistrust, politicization, um, a much more neutral source of fair, objective information. And then Sony, you wanted you want a policy that just has more teeth in it for who, who gets data and what kind of assets they have and should things, the worst case scenario unfold, do they have the assets that can, they can cover themselves? This conversation, we're gonna begin wrapping up, but you know, I, I wanted to check in with you because it's been an interesting year in this space, even before the pandemic, um, when it comes to innovation and data privacy. And speaking of a source of information, you know, at Becker's, we strive to be, um, present the facts and the facts alone and it's fair to say that no company wants a front page story in Becker's or elsewhere about how its innovation efforts, AI building, machine learning, what have you, compromise the consumer or patient privacy or that information was used without consumer's knowledge. At the same time, while that's not at all desired, it is a learning opportunity. And even if it doesn't happen to you, I'm curious how you as leaders and in positions of great power and decision-making at your organizations, what do you walk away from when you see privacy innovation struggles at other organizations that are highly publicized? One of the biggest lessons that I've learned in some of these relationships is that if we were looking at an innovative relationship, the first thing is, you know, what is the goal of this relationship? Does it really serve the vision and the mission of our organization and our patients in a positive way? Is this meeting um, the, the goals that we have for ourselves and our patients? I think that's the most important thing. And then if that is the case and there is an opportunity, I think you need to bring all of your colleagues who are involved in privacy and compliance and legal and security um, and get them introduced to this project from the beginning. I think if you as an innovation person um, do the project and, and try to negotiate business terms by yourselves without involving um, all of these people who are the ones um, who, have, who need to have a say in how our data is used and uh, transferred. I think if you delay that process, then if there are any issues, you don't see that and, and you, you miss out on it. 
And it could be that you've gone through this tunnel of negotiations and have some issues at the end. So one of the biggest lessons I think is that when you feel that this project is a go, you need to have that multidisciplinary team engaged from the beginning and really providing the input as to why at each stage we could go forward or not. And, and, um, and, and this way, I think we make an informed decision. And then if it's in any way possible, if there was a patient advisory group or patient, I don't even know, you know, it's, it's not that it's a, a formal group, but if there was input that you could get from patients on this project that you're doing so that you can look at it, not just from a provider perspective, but from a patient perspective as well, I think that input would help to make these projects a lot stronger and, and, and much better received so that the press releases are about how we are serving the communities. Manoja makes an excellent point and I want to build on it. You definitely want to engage all of your resources and their years and sometimes decades of experience as you go into looking at these innovative care delivery models, right? Um, in addition to that, what I would also say is that um, the interesting thing about healthcare is if you've been in healthcare for a little bit of time, you realize that everything to a large extent in healthcare is replicable, right? So when, when you see your competition going and trying something super innovative and you ask, step back and you ask yourself, are we, are we using our patient's data appropriately when we do that? Is there value created for our patient or for our mission by going down that path? If the answer is unclear, right? And a lot of times it can be, what I tend to do is I tend to take a step back and say, okay, so what happens if I'm not the first place leader? Nothing, right? I can jump in, be the third guy in line, learn from the first two guys, and I'll still deliver a better product, right? So a lot of ways, I think um, my perspective on this is when I look at innovative models, I ask myself, how is the data going to be used first? Is it, is it always going to benefit my patients? Then I take a step back and say, if that answer is yes, then I'm gonna ask the question, is the model scalable? Or is there even a viable business model, right? If there isn't a viable business model, then, then I'm gonna hold back. If there is a viable business model, the next question is, is the model scalable? And if the model's not scalable, or you think that you're going to be experimenting with that business model for at least the next two to three years, then you can wait to see what mistakes your competition makes as they play around with it, right? So I, I take a different approach to that because to me, at the end of the day, health, in healthcare, everything that somebody else does, you can do using technology, provided that the technology is mature, provided that the policies allow it, and provided that you're able to fund it appropriately, right? So for, for me, that is how I rebalance it because we, we look at our ministry and say, we've been here a hundred years and we're probably going to be around at least another hundred more, right? So whether we adopt one particular uh, fancy, shiny object technology this year as opposed to next doesn't make that big of a difference in our ministry, right? So pacing yourself so that you are taking aim at targets that are achievable. And when you achieve those targets, those targets in totality create positive net value to the communities you serve. I think that's the biggest uh, value proposition, you have to be balancing. And if you can balance it, and then you look at saying, how do we approach it? Definitely, you need to engage 
as many experts as possible because years of experience and knowledge has to be brought to bear in these decisions because sometimes you know you walk away we do walk away from decisions where everything else everything looks good financially but we what in our gut we feel is not the right thing and if so that's okay because at the end of the day what are you doing you're you're uh, you're dealing with lives and people's health right so you've got to be confident you got to feel that it's the right thing to do and we do venture out many times we venture out uh, we were working with one one particular ai vendor and we started talking to them about a great product that allows us to do a lot of documentation in in the ehr using artificial intelligence and we started playing around with the technology and very soon you realize they're not ready that doesn't mean you stop the process you then start working with them in a very uh, controlled manner so that you're not putting all your eggs in one basket but help them innovate uh, slowly also because i think that business model is business model and the scalability of the business model is very key and a lot of times you find that in healthcare a lot of projects are not successful because the timing was wrong right and if you had just picked the right timing for the project and you did the change management appropriately you were able to hit every ball out of the park so that is how we look at it two really great lessons that um, and our colleagues with us today can walk away with um, if they weren't already actively applying to their work every day but Manoji you mentioned make sure that when you are taking on a new innovative project you are inviting your colleagues in from privacy legal security they need to be pulling on the same rope as you from the very very beginning not just in those final stages to give the go-aheads. And Sony, you were speaking my language there because that's something we really practice in the newsroom too, is nobody will remember if you were first, but they yeah. will remember if you were wrong yeah. uh, when you're reporting a story or news. So we, we live that every day at Becker's and, and it makes a great world of sense um, from your perspective as well. So thank you both for sharing your insights on that question and for this whole conversation today. Um, about data privacy and innovation, balancing the two in your work and in this interesting environment and world we find ourselves in right now. So Sony, Manoja, I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you for joining me. And to attendees who tuned in today, thank you for being part of this virtual event.